All right, 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Well, things started looking better in chapter 3 um, with the Civil War, but because Joab murdered Abner, uh, the peace that Abner negotiated between Israel and David is, is off, and the Civil War continues. But because Ishbosheth is a weak leader, the conflict doesn't continue for that much longer. And when the nation reunites finally, it does provoke an attack from the real enemy, the Philistines. And so through all this long journey, David finally will take back the land that the Philistines stole from Israel. And in that, he realizes something very important. He realizes that God prospered him because God wanted to bless his people, that it was never about David. Not that God didn't love David, not that God didn't want to bless David, but he raised him up and prospered him in that spot, not for him, but for the people. So chapter 4, we begin in verse 1. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. Now Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Baana, the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Ramon a Beeriathite of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth also was reckoned to Benjamin. And the Beerothites fled to Gittaim, and they were sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan saw son, he had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it came to pass as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. And so we're kind of introduced to the power structure over here on Israel's side, these other tribes that have not recognized David's kingship yet uh, after Abner's gone. He was the real power there. But we're introduced to the situation here and given this kind of the state of the civil war. It mentions first uh, concerning Ishbosheth that when he heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, and the idea of him being dead in Hebron, he's, pro- he's probably thinking that David rejected the peace offer. Oh, you want peace? Here's my answer. And he kills Abner. And so as a result, his hands, it says, were feeble. It means to hang limp, and all the Israelites were troubled. Uh, all the strength for the conflict drained out of Ishbosheth. He, he knew he couldn't defeat David, especially without Abner. But on the other hand, he thinks, well, peace is impossible because David doesn't want peace. He killed Abner. And so he's in this spot where he feels stuck. Now, I'm sure all of us have found ourselves in situations where you know, you just kind of go, I don't want to think about it. You know, I, I, I wish it would just all go away. I'll close my eyes and I'll open them and it'll be gone, right? We've all gone through stuff, some of us obviously much more serious than others, but where you just kind of wish you could close your eyes and you'd wake up and it'd all be a bad dream, right? The problem is, is that when you're awake, <laughs> it's not a dream. And, and you can't just be stuck, you know? You can't just be stuck. Now, it doesn't mean you need to go off and do something. That is sometimes and frequently a mistake as well. But sometimes doing the something is seeking the Lord. And if Ishbosheth had sought the Lord here, the Lord would have told him and said, David didn't kill Abner. You know, there is an option for you still. But he didn't. And so he's stuck. And because 
there's no leader now. It says all the Israelites were troubled. The word there means terrified. In other words, if David did that to Abner, a highly respected general in the army, what would he do to them if they won, if he won? You know, they sided with Ishbosheth as well. And that David would win was surely inevitable now that Abner was dead because their king wasn't standing up for them by trying to do anything, whether it was defeat David or try to make peace. You know, it's interesting because this idea of David being a tyrant king will end up getting David in trouble later on when Absalom turns the people against him. He's going to come and say, well, you know, if I were king, you know, we didn't have this tyrant over here as a king, I would do things much better. And it creates a problem later on. So while Joab may think he's done David a service by killing Abner, the way he dealt with Abner only deepened the rift that Abner created which shows us an important truth. (laughs) Two wrongs never make a right. Never. Never under any circumstances. You cannot fight evil with evil, all right? The, The Scriptures tell us very plainly in Romans chapter 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a command from God. It's not, yay, this is a way that you can approach things. Don't over, be overcome by evil, but overcome it with good. No. He says this is the call of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not allowed to let evil defeat us. We are to overcome it with good. We're to respond to evil with right. What we see in this conflict between the tribes that rejected David is a consistent line of responding to, to wrongdoing with more wrongdoing. And it's interesting because when you look at David's side, we see the same thing with one exception. David alone seems to share God's heart of overcoming evil with good. And so in this, we want to be like David. In Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, it has more to say than just don't be overcome by evil. It also says this, beginning in verse 17, it says, do not repay any man evil for evil. Instead, provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, as much as lies in you, God doesn't expect you to control other people, but as if it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. And Joab could have done that, even though it would have been extremely difficult. Dearly beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And isn't that what David did with his enemies? Always did that with his enemies. Lord, you get them. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. I love how I've heard that interpreted at times. When you're really nice to people, it just, it really gets them. No, that, that's absurd. You know, if you're really nice to people, you're heaping coals of fire on your head, you're burning their head off, you know? No, the idea is back then, everybody carried coals on their head, carried them in, in containers because it's not like you just had them around where you could use them all the time. And so you'd go purchase them and you'd bring them home. And they were necessary to cook your food, to keep the home warm, all these things. And so the idea is by doing this, you're caring for them. You're blessing them. And that's when it closes off with that last verse. Do not be overcome by evil, little children. Overcome evil with good. You know, probably one of, the, one of the many things I remember my parents telling me, particularly my mom, when I was little, was two wrongs don't make a right, right? I got, I got six siblings, all right? 
All right, and, and what happens when you have siblings, especially if you have that many? Well, somebody's doing something wrong, and usually they're doing it to another sibling. And so frequently, how do you respond when somebody's doing something wrong? You do something wrong back, right? And so early on, two wrongs don't make a right, Will. My little children, don't be over. It's like same thing. The Lord's talking to us because it's hard. Our natural reaction is you took that from me. I'm going to take something from you. My little children, it's a important lesson. You're not allowed to let evil overcome you. You defeat it by doing what's right with good. Now, there were other powerful people who were on the other side, who were, had not sided with David. And since Ishbosheth is doing nothing, the writer decides to let us know about these other groups that potentially could have taken matters into their own hands. In verses 2 and 3, we're introduced to these two high-ranking captains in Ishbosheth's army, um, Banna and Rechab. Uh, these are high-ranking military officers, and they are Beriathites. Now, that's interesting because the Beriathites are not Jews. They're not, they're not Israelis. Uh, the Gibeonites lived in three large cities, and this is one of their cities. The Gibeonites, remember, they were the Canaanites that tricked Joshua into making a treaty with them. So what's interesting, though, we remember from a couple weeks ago, we learned that Saul broke Israel's promise to the Gibeonites, and he tried to wipe them out. And when he did that, he took control of this city, and he made it part of Benjamin's territory, and then, you know, a bunch of Benjamites immigrated there. These guys are from there. So they're part of Saul's family. They're very loyal to him. And these guys, they had fled uh, from uh, Beeroth and to Gitaim and were sojourners there until this day. Uh, Beeroth is right next to Philistine territory, so they'd fled their homes after Saul was defeated and killed up in Jezreel. And it's interesting, it says they were here until this day, which means that David gave Beeroth back to the Gibeonites when he became king. They couldn't just go back. And so these guys are not exactly, you know, fond of David per se. They were high enough in the Israeli command structure to do something about Ishbosheth's inactivity, but they're not the only ones that could have stepped up. Someone else could have, although he was in a weak spot, verse 4. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came about Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse, well, she was fleeing like everyone else because the Philistines were just ransacking everything and moving in. And so as she was hurrying to flee, uh, he fell and, and it was injured uh, in his legs. It didn't work anymore. And so his name, uh, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, again, we are introduced to Mephibosheth here because he's got a claim uh, to the family of Saul to some degree. Uh, he will end up being, after the events of today and that we're going to study tonight, the last surviving member of Saul's family. But because of his disability, he can't really mount a war against David even if he wanted to. Um, he is important to the narrative for other reasons because David also made a covenant with Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 20, verses 11 through 16, the last time that uh, Jonathan and David met, they made a covenant with one another. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 11, when David is on the run initially from Saul, Saul um, came after him at Samuel's house and looked really bad for David, and 
So David didn't come back, and the king was upset when he didn't come back, and so he's working with Jonathan to figure out, you know, what he's supposed to do. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it's actually not the last time they saw each other, there's one other time. In verse 11 it says, and Jonathan said unto David, come and let us go out into the field. And so they both went both of them out into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I do not send unto you and show it to you, then the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do you evil, then I will show it to you and send you away that you may go in peace. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So the idea is he's pronouncing his loyalty to David. He's saying, David, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm going to let you know what my dad's thoughts are towards you. And if, if it's evil, then my, my blessing upon you, but you can go in peace. I'm not going to bring you in. But then he asked David for this in return. Verse 14, and you shall not only while I yet live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not. Don't, you know, not only am I asking you not to kill me in a war with my dad, but also that you shall not cut off the kind, uh, thy kindness from my house forever, my family, my kids. And he says, no, not when the Lord has cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. So the idea is I'll be good to you, you be good to me and my family, let's not do what, what rivals normally do um, in this day and age. And so Mephibosheth is, is, you know, how is David going to handle this guy? We'll find out later on in the story, but we're introduced to him and his situation here. Now, since he can't do anything, it leaves these other two guys. And so let's see what they do. Verse 5. And the sons of Rimon, the Beriathite, Rechab, and Baana, they went and they came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. Um, Back then, the Israelites had something very similar to a siesta time in the hottest part of the day. Um, this is not, you know, Ishbosheth just, you know, wimping out, laying on the bed, oh, woe is me. Um, I don't know why he's sleeping. It could just be he was taking a nap, and that's what people normally did at this time. Whatever he's doing, sleeping there, it makes it the ideal time to assassinate him. And so, uh, their thought is, since David rejected Abner's, uh, you know, attempt to make peace, then we're going to have to, you know, find our own way to make peace. And so verse 6, they came thither into the midst of the house as though they were just fetching grain, and they smote him under the fifth rib. That seems to be a favorite spot in Second Samuel. <clears throat> you know, I mean, find the fifth rib and never mind. Get him. And Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him. They stabbed him in the gut, and then they killed him. So then they put him to death after they stabbed him in the gut, and then they beheaded him and took his head and uh, got away through the plain all night because they were ahead of all the pursuers. Ahead, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Mike Avila is rubbing off on me. These guys decide, well, we're going to try to win David's favor by making peace in a violent way. Abner tried to make peace in a peaceful way. We're going to try to win David's favor by making peace in a violent way. And so, verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron, and they said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. <coughs> Pardon me, I have to sneeze. 
Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, which sought your life. And the Lord has avenged, my Lord, the king this day of Saul and of his seed. <laughs> we are the instruments of, uh, of vengeance upon Saul for everything he did to you all those years, David. Aren't you happy with us? The war is over. We've brought you the head of your enemy. Well, David's response to them is consistent with how he's always previously treated Saul and his family. Verse 9. And David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Bereathite, and said unto them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have done, brought good, good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought I would give him, have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take away you from the earth? And so David commanded his young men, and they slew them, and they cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. I love David's response. He says, As the Lord lives, let me tell you a very important truth, boys. As true as God is alive, who has redeemed my soul out of adversity. And by the way, he's the one who's always rescued me when things were bad. I didn't need people to go cutting off heads to rescue me. God's always been the one who's rescued me. If I executed a man who claimed to kill Saul, who was just looking for a reward, how much more when someone's committed a murder? How much more when, a wicked, when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? The word righteous there means innocent. I don't think David is saying that Ishbosheth was a godly man or never did anything wrong. But Ishbosheth had never hunted David down like Saul, his father, did. This was Abner's war, not Ishbosheth's. And Ishbosheth hadn't done anything worthy of execution, let alone being murdered. And so David, who is a godly king, must execute these men for their crimes. And so he says, shall I not therefore require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? So David, he, he doesn't just kill them. He cuts their hands and feet off and then it says hangs, but it, the word there for hangs is polite. It, it, they hung all right, but it's because a spear was shoved up through the, their spine all the way through their, their head. And so uh, that'll give you a beautiful mental image. So David impales their mutilated bodies on a spike to make it clear what he thinks about what people who do this type of thing, how he feels about it. And he's not cool with it. David makes it very clear that he does not approve of what they've done. He doesn't want anyone to think these guys were hired or that he was okay with what they did. And in contrast to how he dishonors them, it says, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Again, David honors the slain trying to make it clear to everyone that he never wanted this war and he was not in favor of reuniting the kingdom through evil means. There's an idea called pragmatism out there, and it's the idea that the ends justify the means. That is not a biblical idea. The means need to be God's way. The ends never justify doing things opposite of God's way, period. You know, what I love about these chapters here with David when he deals with Joab and he deals with these guys, deals with the, the um, Amalekite who, killed Saul, who claimed to kill Saul, 
David had so many opportunities to become the tyrant that Saul had been, right? But he resists every single time. It's like every single time he says, no, I'm not like Saul and I won't be like Saul. I'm going to try to do this the right way. And this is one of the reasons why David will be beloved by so many, even though deep divides do exist in the nation. It's why David is remembered as Israel's greatest king, even though he wasn't even close to perfect. You see, David didn't make this about himself. He made it about what was best for God's people. Now, because David handles this the right way on multiple occasions, this gives the other tribal leaders courage to believe that peace might be possible. And so, chapter 5, verse 1, Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and they spoke, saying, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were he that led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall feed my people Israel, and you shall be captain over Israel. And so all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So, what's interesting is how the tribal leaders make their case for peaceful reunification here. They say to David when they come to him, behold, which means please listen to what we have to say. And then they give three reasons for why they want to reunite under his leadership. Number one, they said, listen, we are your bone and your flesh. We are all Israelis here. We are all God's people. This conflict is wrong. Good reason. It was a point that should have been seen as soon as Saul died, but I suppose it's better to eventually realize it than never. The second reason they give is, well, in time past, when Saul was king, you were he that led us out and brought Israel in. You know, you were one of the highest ranking generals in our army. We followed you before, and, and you know what? The real enemy here are the Philistines, and you're the best person to lead us to defeat them. Another good reason. The third reason they say is, and the Lord said to you, you shall feed my people Israel. You shall be a captain over Israel. And this was the most important reason. God had picked David to shepherd them, to care for them. And so what they're saying in this is we're prepared to submit to God's plan now. We're done doing things our own way. And so in this, all three of their reasons, they, they contain a confession. We blew it big time. But we want to make things right if you're willing. And David is willing. You know, in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus says something very interesting. He starts the chapter off by saying, you know, <clears throat> offenses are going to happen. You're going to wrong people. People are going to wrong you. It's impossible that it won't happen. And then he says, if you're the one doing the wrong and you do it to one of my little ones, better that you go put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the seat. Don't do that. That's the idea of what he's trying to convey. But what if it's done to you? How do you, how do you respond? Luke 17, 3 and 4. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day, turn again to you saying, I repent, you shall 
forgive him. Now, the argument I frequently hear people make is, but they've already asked me a couple times, and they've already admitted they did something wrong, and they did it again. I'm, I, they're not sincere. There's no way they're sincere. First off, you and I can never know someone's heart. But secondly, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Because that's what Jesus said, not me. I didn't write that. I didn't go, hey, I'm going to say something really crazy tonight. Nobody's going to like it, but it's going to be how it is. Jesus said this. So if your brother sins against you, he says, rebuke him. Tell him, that was wrong, man. But if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. And I love that Jesus says before he commands us to do this, take heed to yourself. Bitterness and unforgiveness are something I must guard against. No matter how horrible the thing's done to me, those two sins will destroy me if I don't take heed to myself. They'll destroy me. Doesn't matter how much someone else is trying to destroy me, that will destroy me if I do not guard against it. Bitterness and unforgiveness. David had lots of reasons to be bitter. After running from Saul for all those years, and then finally the, you know, the tribe of Judah crowns him king, and he's thinking, all right, here we're going to go. We're going to go fight the Philistines, and then Abner and Ishbosheth and, and all these other tribes go, uh-uh, we're, we're going with the house of Saul, and, and we're going to fight you. It had been very easy to David to go, you know what? Done. Done with all of you. All of you forever. A pox on your house forever. Right? And yet we see David try and try again to end this thing peacefully. And so when the opportunity comes, it says that King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. They hammered out the details of a peaceful reunification, um, and, and it, it worked. David, he does it, they do it before the Lord. In other words, David wanted this done God's way, and he wanted everyone on board with God's way. We're going to do it right this time. <laughs> and it works. And so they anointed David king over Israel, the whole nation. And so, even though it says they anointed David king over Israel, what's really going on here is that they're saying, we want the Lord to be in charge again. We want the Lord to be in charge again. And you know, as much wrong as was done to David, David's okay with that because being king was never about him. It was about the Lord's glory and about the Lord's leading and about the Lord's blessing on his people. And if you're a leader in some way, if you're, you know, you're, you're a parent, you're a husband, you, know, you're, you have a ministry, you're, you have employees, you know, if you're in a leadership position, that needs to be your mindset too. It's not about me. It's about God's glory, it's about God's leading, and it's about God's blessing upon the people I serve. Well, verses four and five just give us a summary of David's reign over Israel. I think it's interesting that it says David was 30 years old when he began to reign. How old was he when Samuel anointed him? He was just a teenager at the time. That means that God... David didn't see God's promise fulfilled fully because it says it was seven years later until... He reigned over all of Israel. Thirty-seven years old. It's at least twenty years, probably twenty-five years, that David didn't see God's promise fulfilled. That's how long it took. 
How long have you been praying for that thing that God promised you? (laughs) Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't stray off the path. Keep your eyes on him and keep trusting him. Don't have any zigzags in your history. Now, verse 5 mentions here that David moved his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem at some point. And so, of course, the question is, well, how did that happen? Because we know that Jerusalem is under the control of the Jebusites. Well, verse 6 is going to catapult us into the future a little bit and tell us that story. Uh, In verse 6, in fact, verses 6 through 16, they transport us about four or five years into the future after David defeats the Philistines, which happens at the end of this chapter. So we're, we're not going in chronological order here. The author is compiling events by subject rather than chronology. We'll go back to the correct chronology in verse 17. But in verse 6, it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spoke unto David, saying, Except you take away the blind and the lame, you shall not come in hither, thinking, David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever gets up the gutter and smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David, and David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So we start here with David taking Jerusalem from these overconfident Jebusites. Now, Jerusalem is a city we have met before this. It's been mentioned a few times. Melchizedek, uh, the king priest who visited Abraham after he rescued Lot, remember? And Abraham paid him tithes, and then he came with um, uh, bread and wine, remember? He was from this city. Um, Joshua mentions Jerusalem as one of the cities that Israel failed to conquer. But from this chapter on, Jerusalem will become the most important city in the Bible. It will become the most important city in the Bible, which is why the author breaks chronology. Now, I have to warn you, if you are inclined to be politically correct, you might want to close your ears for the next few verses, all right? Because this is not politically correct at all. It says that when David came up to fight against the Jebusites, that they said unto him, they cried down from their walls, unless you take away the blind and the lame, you're not coming in here, thinking, and they're thinking to each other, no way David can take this place. The phrase here is, we don't even need our best soldiers to defeat you. Your army's so pathetic, we could defend this city with our disabled people. (laughs) Yet it says, nevertheless, despite their confidence, David took the stronghold of Zion and he called it the city of David. Sometimes the Temple Mount is called Zion. Sometimes all the hills around Jerusalem are called Zion, but the southeastern hill that is known as the city of David is the original Mount Zion. And so how did David pull off taking a fortress that Israel hadn't been able to take for centuries? Well, verse 8. And David said on that day, whosoever gets up to the gutter and smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. David, again, not exactly politically correct here. 
We'll start off here. It mentions whosoever gets up to the gutter. There was a water shaft that was heavily guarded. If, if we ever go to Jerusalem again, <laughs> um, we, we go through that shaft and we walk through it, actually. And you see where the people of Israel, the army, had to fight to take the city. We will go to the ancient city of Jebus, is what they called it. David named it Jerusalem. But we will go to the and see the city that the David fought against. Uh, it's underground. They've dug it out and excavated it, and you go underground to go see it. It's pretty cool. So he says, listen, this is our only way in. We can't, you know, can't scale the walls or anything like that. It's our only way in. So whoever gets up that gutter and takes the city, he'll be my new general. He'll be the chief and the captain. <laughs> Wherefore, and, you know, David basically what he says is, you know, and, and he makes this little comment in here, whoever smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul. David basically says, Hey, they said, hey, you couldn't be, you know, we don't even need our best soldiers. We can have our disabled people defend the city and you couldn't take it. And David says, yeah, you're all disabled. That, that's what he's saying. He says, they're all disabled, you know? And he says, you guys, and then he goes, and you guys know how much I hate disabled people. And then all the Israelites are like, ha, 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 let's go get them, you know? So not politically correct. These are soldiers talking here and there's definitely some soldier speak. And so, they go up and they take the city, wherefore they said, after they take the city, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house, David's palace in Jerusalem. We'll find out more about that in verse 11. But apparently David never let the Jebusites forget this taunt, this taunt that they made. Anytime a Jebusite wanted to come into his palace, he said, no, I hate disabled people. Get out. So he reminded them of how they had teased him. Uh, if you have a King James version here, and again, I'm not saying it's right to do this, it's just how they talked. If you have a King James Version, you'll notice that there are some words in italics here, the part where David says he shall be chief and captain. And that's because it's not here in the original text. However, we know this is what David said because 1 Chronicles 11.6 tells us that that's what he said. So in 1 Chronicles 11.6, it, it says a little bit more. It says, and David said, whoever smites the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And so Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first, and he was chief. Now, if Joab became the new chief, that means at some point in the four or five years before this happened, David fired him. Because David, Joab was, was David's general before he killed Abner. And so when David makes this claim, Joab says, get out of my way, I'm getting up there. And Joab is the one who led the charge through the water shaft and took the city. And so, can you imagine what it was like for David, you know? He looks down, he looks up to the city, and all of a sudden he sees Joab up, Joab up there waving a flag. Hey, uncle, I'm back. <laughs> David can't get rid of him even though he tries. Verse 9, so David dwelt in the fort Jerusalem, and he called it the city of David. And David built round about from Millo and inward. Millo, these were the outer terraces of the city before. Uh, Judges 1 verse 8 tells us that Israel did conquer all of the surrounding Jebusite dwellings that weren't in the fort. They just couldn't take the fortress. So it had become basically a, a military installation only. Well, David you know, these beautiful terraces, he rebuilt them on the outside of the fortress. And I mean, can you imagine the views, you know, from these terraces out and looking down in the valleys all around uh, Jerusalem? And he began to basically turn the hill into a real city again. And thus, it says, David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So David, you know, 
We see a time where David's finally at peace. He prospers greatly. His fame grows, you know, because the Lord is with him. In fact, his fame grew so much that the Phoenician king of Tyre sought a treaty with him. Verse 11, and Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a palace. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. Now, Hiram, the king of Tyre, becomes important because his alliance to David eventually creates problems for Israel down the road when one of his descendants, a not important woman named Jezebel, marries King Ahab. So we're just getting to know some of these family trees right now and how they come into the story later on. But he had a friendship with David. He befriends him, and he offers to build him a palace. You know, it's interesting, David knew that God made him a promise, but he never dreamed that God would be this good to him. And so as he's experiencing all this goodness, he begins to ponder, why? Why? Why are you doing this for me, Lord? And it says David perceived, he realized two things. Number one, that it was the Lord who established him king over Israel. In other words, it was God who did this, not David. And then number two, that God had exalted his kingdom, not for David's sake, but for his people Israel's sake. God had blessed David so the entire nation would experience a blessing. And you know, every leader who is godly understands these two important truths. It's not about me. It's not me that built whatever it is that God's doing, you know, or the, whatever the, 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 the ministry is, or my family, how it's prospering, or my business is prospering. It's not me. It's not me. It's the Lord. The Bible says prosperity does not come from the east or the west, but where does it come from? The Lord. It comes from the Lord. The second thing that every godly leader understands is it's not about me even in the blessings. Yes, God loves me and he wants to bless me. God loves you and he wants to bless you. But when God calls a leader and he blesses them, it's because he loves everybody else as well. The leader is not greater than those they lead. They're part of the group that God wants to bless, and this is the role they play in that blessing. Now, here's what's cool about that. Realizing those two truths, that it's God who does it, you know, it's God who prospers it, and it's the Lord doing it because he loves his people. Realizing that takes the pressure off. Basically means I'm not the one building something, you're not the one building something. And it keeps our pride in check because it reminds us that we're servants, not rulers, right? We're servants. We exist to serve God's people, whether you're you're a mom or a dad, whether you're an employer or whether you serve in the ministry. And isn't that what Jesus taught us? In John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, after Jesus washed their feet, he goes, do you realize what I've done to you? He goes, if I, being your master, have done this unto you, how much more should you do the same? Take on the form of a servant and do the dirty, stinky jobs. You know, Jesus said, you call me Lord, and rightfully so. And no servant is greater than his master. So if Jesus would stoop down, he humbled himself, you know, and stepped out of perfection into our world, you know, served us when he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, how much more should that be the way that we go about things. 
And you know what I love about David is you know he understood this truth because you see it consistently in the Psalms. Consistently in the Psalms. We read in Psalm 28 uh, for our scripture reading, we read about how David said, Lord, I'm in a big heap of trouble because there are evil people and they're doing evil things to me and I'm a mess. And he cries out to the Lord, Lord, get them and save me. And then when he says, Lord, you did it. You did it. You rescued me and you saved me. But then in the last two verses, David says this. Psalm 28. He says, the Lord is their strength. He is a saving strength of his anointed one, the king. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. David's heart when he got out of this trouble was he's like, you know what, Lord? You didn't just do this for me. You did it for them. You're their strength. You're the one who does these things. And so, Lord, save your people. Bless your inheritance. Feed them also and bless them forever, right? That's the heart of of a leader. It's how Jesus was. It's how he taught us to be. And it's one of the things that David got right. Was David in trouble? Yes. But his place was to seek the good of God's people, not himself. And I ask you tonight, is that how you lead your family, your marriage? Is that how you lead your ministry or your work environment? It needs to be if we name the name of Christ. Well, everything wasn't great for David. Verse 13, 2 Samuel chapter 5, he didn't do everything perfectly. And David, verse 13 says, took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David, and these be the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem, Shemua and Shobab and Nathan and Solomon, Ibhar also and Elishua and Nepheg and Japhia and Elishama and Eliada and Eliphelet. Um, sadly, this area of David's failings becomes worse. And while David sought to do many things God's way, he enlarges his harem. It doesn't tell us how many women, but just a lot of kids, just sons. We know he had daughters probably too. And this will hurt David in the future. Now, when we get to verse 17, we return from the future to the Philistine problem after Israel reunifies. In fact, if you want to understand the connection, you need to read the end of verse 3 and the start of verse 17. The end of verse 3 says, and they anointed David king over Israel, verse 17. But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David and not to say hi and congratulations. And David heard about it and he went down to the fortress. The Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Um, They came down to seek David to put down this reunification attempt before it could rally itself. Now, it says that David went out to go meet them, and he came into a fortress. We don't know where this fortress is. We just know the general location. We don't know which one it is, just the general location, because it says the Philistines spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Now, the word there, spread, it doesn't mean they spread out. The word there means they sent out raiding parties to plunder. Uh, The Valley of Rephaim is about a a mile northwest of Bethlehem, David's hometown, on the border between Benjamin and Judah's lands. The Philistines were in control of Benjamin and all the way to the north. 
So they had left Judah alone after defeating Saul for whatever their reasons were, but now they begin sending out raiding parties because they're going to invade Judah. So they mean to do to Judah what they've done to the rest of Israel up to this point, to drive them out of the land, to drive them across the river. And so David, verse 19, he inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said unto David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. And so David came to Baal Perazim. Uh, it's a hill on the north side of the valley where the Philistines camped. It's named uh, Baal Perazim uh, because it, it means uh, um, God is created, or the Lord has created a, be- a breach, an opening. It's named this because of the massive opening that, that God gave David in the battle. For it says that David smote them there and said, the Lord has broken forth upon my enemies before me as the breach of waters. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal Perazim. And they that left, uh, there they left the Philistines, left their images, their idols, and David and his men burned them. Um, This is in obedience to Deuteronomy 7 uh, verse 25, which says, the graven images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not desire the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it unto you, lest you be snared therein, for it is an abomination to the Lord uh, your God. So again, David may have gotten the marriage thing horribly wrong, but he did get many other things right. These images, these idols that were left behind would be worth a fortune, but David doesn't care. And that's a good lesson for us, because better financial position is never worth a worse spiritual position. Never. And I have watched people at times make decisions where I, you know, they come for counsel and they say, I don't think this is a good decision for your spiritual well-being. And they make it because it's a, you know, it's a better financial well-being. And that is never a good trade to make. Now, David may have won the battle, but he could not press his advantage. So the Philistines are still living in Israeli homes. So They come back and try again, verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephim. And when David inquired of the Lord, the Lord said, you shall not go up, but fetch a compass behind them and come upon them uh, opposite the mulberry trees. And let it be when you hear the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then you shall bestir yourself, for then shall the Lord go out before you to smite the host of the Philistines. So, Interestingly, David doesn't presume that God's will is the same this time, that God's plan is the same, and it isn't. God has a plan that will allow David to take Israeli land back this time. And so this time he says, fetch a compass, which means go around and flank their rear. And stand in the place that's opposite, I guess there was some field of mulberry trees. And he says, when you hear the sound of a going, which means of marching, probably the rustling of the trees from a a strong breeze. He says, when you hear that, Bestir yourself. You gotta love the King James. Bestir yourself. You know, I, I tell that to my kids all the time. Get your chores done. Bestir yourself, you know? No, I don't. I don't do that. No one talks like that. I do say what it means, which means quicker. Come on, let's go. Let's go. It means move quickly. In other words, make a rapid strike, you know? These are very detailed instructions from the Lord, by the way. Uh, and they required David to trust each step in the process. Going around behind the enemy would leave David a bad line of retreat if the battle went bad. Waiting for the trees to rustle? How do you know if it's been enough wrestling? Rustling? Like, did God give him a mirror? And he's like, all right, when it hits six, you can go, you know? 
Like, like I, I mean, I, would, I don't know about you, I'm the type of thing that double guesses, you know, like, like, like God says, you know, you know, hey, go do this, and I, and I outthink myself, right? You know, I said, well, Lord, that's, that's what you told me to do, but, but is that really you, you know? I mean, what are you looking at? You know, you, know, you, know, you got the soldiers there all sitting next to you, and you know, and they're like, branch moved, not yet, you know? Two moved, not yet, you know? I mean, you really got to say, we'll know when it's the Lord. So David has to trust the Lord for this. He had to trust that God would make it obvious. And you know what? God did. So David did so as the Lord commanded him. What a beautiful phrase there. He just did what God told him to do. And as a result, it says he smote the Philistines, not just in that valley, but from Geba, a city in the tribe of Benjamin, until you come to Gezer. Gezer was a Philistine city on the border of Ephraim, the far west of Israel. In other words, David won back all that land that the Philistines had taken. So, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths, right? Right. Well, David will later invade Philistia and he'll conquer it. But for now, Israel's whole again. And everything that Saul did, the Lord undid through David. The man who did not make it about himself and allowed God to do as he pleased so his people could be blessed. And that's what we need to do. Not make it about ourselves, but just let God be God. To trust him with all our heart, to let him do as he pleases so others can be blessed. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, it is very easy for me <laughs> to think, oh, but God, if I don't do something, it's, it's, it's going to be a mess. But Lord, you do all things well. You never fail. You never lie. You can be trusted, and you have proven yourself trustworthy time and time again. So, Lord, tonight we decide to not make it about us, well, whether we lead something or we don't lead something, we don't want it to make it about us, about me. Well, we just, just want to get out of the way and let you be you, follow you wherever you take us, knowing that as a result, you'll bless others or that our lives will be used to impact and bless others. We want that, and so we say, Lord, here I am, take me, I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen.